Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How's everything? That's pretty good. How are you, Anne? Good, good. So now we're on the downside of getting our vaccines and we're going to just, you know, kind of turn our lives around, turn the entire planet around from this pandemic. That's what it does. It's going around for a new year. Yes, absolutely. So um, yeah, so let's talk about some stuff, some other stuff that's not pandemic related for a change. <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah. So I have an article that I thought was interesting. It really caught my eye when I saw the topic, um, which is an endocrine hypothesis to explain obesity-related lactation insufficiency in breastfeeding mothers. And also was interesting that this was actually published in the Journal of Dairy Research. So then I thought, ooh, this is very, this is like someone who doesn't like travel in our circles. Um, So this researcher is Christopher Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, at the University of Copenhagen, Copenhagen um, in Denmark. And so the article is written by this particular researcher who um, is suggesting research methodology to figure out how and whether lactation insufficiency is really related to obesity versus lack of support. Mm-hmm. And so first he points out that in the United States, almost 60% of reproductive age women and a third of children who are between the ages of two and 19 are overweight or obese, which I think we know. I mean, that's not just the US, that's all over the world. Um, uh, Not every country, of course, but many countries, most countries. And in addition, um, research has shown that pre-pregnancy obesity is associated with a 13% reduced or reduction in successful initiation of breastfeeding and a 20% decrease in any breastfeeding at six months. So there's this association that we've been playing with for a long time, trying to figure out, you know, is it nature, is it nurture? And so in his background, he briefly describes some of the evidence for that relationship and then talks about research models, like what, how he would design some studies. So this is not an actual study. This is just his thoughts. Um, so first he points out that weight gain during pregnancy probably doesn't play a role. So we don't have to worry about how much a woman gains during pregnancy impacting lactation. It has more to do with her pre-pregnancy weight gain um, or her pre-pregnancy weight, I should say, her BMI. Um, He also, he states that um, in the dairy industry that among bovine obesity during puberty can have a permanent damaging effect on mammary development and milk production. So they really try to make sure that these bovine, as they're going through puberty, are not uh, overweight uh, because they're not going to produce as much milk. He also states that um, there is now sufficient evidence that the relationship between obesity and insufficient lactation is probably more likely physiologic and not entirely psychosocial. So we know that there's probably some psychosocial evidence because we've seen this in some of the literature, like women who are um, overweight who are not as comfortable with their bodies to talk to a lactation consultant or to breastfeed in public, for example. Um, but he said that, um, you know, I guess, you know, there's, so I think the outcome of some of that psychosocial evidence is um, uh, states that we should be supporting these women more to help them to breastfeed. But he said that there was some pretty strong data from the Danish national birth cohort um, that the relationship between um, obesity and early weaning exists despite optimal support for these obese women. Um, and I, I, I would say, I wonder, you know, when you're talking about psychosocial part that you sort of highlighted was the sort of psycho part, not yeah. psycho, psychological part of how people are feeling about it and looking for support. But I think it's also really important to highlight the aspect that is um, the result of disparity, right? So there is a increased risk of obesity in poor families with less resources. And then those are the same families that have poor lactation support resources. Yes, absolutely. It's true. Right. So, um, so less income, um, less education, higher risk of obesity, 
And so you have to tease all that out too, which I think several studies do. And so they've tried to, you know, take, because we know that these people do have lower breastfeeding rates if they have less money and they're less, educa less educated. But I think a lot of studies have still teased it out and have identified that obesity plays a role um, as a separate variable. Um, but what he's saying is that, look, you know, we can get beyond that. And even if you control for that, and even if you optimize support, there's still something physiologic going on. Um, he then talks about some animal studies um, that if you take genetically obese mice, uh, that they have marked inhibition of mammary development. So these are mice that um, overeat from the time that they wean um, as pups. And um, also, um, if they were not genetically obese, but they were just overfed, um, like starting like at puberty or something, that uh, they had impaired lactogenesis too. And, um, and then in terms of other animal studies, he mentions that for bovine, that their milk yield is reduced if they're overweight. So not just um, obesity as teen, as in, during puberty, but also if they're just overweight at the time that they're lactating, uh, that they don't make as much milk. So then he talked about um, hormonal causes for the association between obesity and lactation insufficiency. And so, what he, so this is really interesting, which I've never heard of before. So we know that secretory activation happens, that milk comes in, you know, copious milk comes in when the placenta goes away. And there's that, and he mentions that the primary hormones are gonna be estrogen and progesterone, even though there's loss of other hormones as well, right? Um, so he said that for obese individuals, some of that progesterone that is, uh, that is dec declining because of the um, loss of the placenta actually ends up in the um, fat tissue because it is um, fat soluble, right? So the question is whether or not when it's in the body fat of people who are obese, whether that can still have an inhibitory effect even though it's no longer in the bloodstream. Um, and especially whether or not it has an effect because it's in the mammary fat, um, because it's so close to the breast tissue. And then he also talked about uh, estrogen in kind of the same way, because we know that women who are overweight or obese, that body fat makes estrogen. So the question is, is it the body, is it the estrogen from the body fat that's actually contributing um, to the inhibition of prolactin at the lactocyte? So interesting. Yeah. So I thought those were really, and so we haven't really seen any studies regarding that so much. I know that um, there have been some studies looking at, um, for women with insufficient uh, milk production, they've looked at different types of like androgen levels, um, but those are in the blood, right? So then it's hard to know um, because you're not measuring fat stores of um, androgens. So he just had a couple ideas for research on this. Um, First, he said, we really do need to figure out how much of this is coming from puberty because there's such strong evidence that obesity at puberty has such an impact on breast development. Um, and I wonder if that, to me, I wonder if that's why sometimes we see these women who have those characteristic changes, who um, are obese, they carry the weight in their abdomen and they have the widely spaced breasts, you know, with the nipples that are pointing down um, and the lack of that breast tissue in the infrabreast region, you know, in the underside of the breast. And I do see that correlation, like when I'm doing it, I mean, the breasts look distinctly different um, than other women's breasts. When I see even these women at 40, 50, 60, you know, 80 for breast exams, you know, I can tell that these are women who probably would not have made sufficient milk if they had lactated. Um, so he suggested um, that with mice, to start with mice, and in the research protocol, he would look at lactation success in those who are persistently overfed as soon as they're weaned as pups, and they're constantly overfed throughout their life, um, and then during uh, pregnancy and lactation. And, um, and then those who are overfed from weaning just to puberty, and then stop overfeeding them after puberty, and then give them just a normal diet after that. Um, and then those who are overfed after um, puberty until, you know, until the end of their lives or through lactation. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that that would be very interesting to look at the differences there to figure out like where is the, where does obesity have its major effect on lactation? You know, at what point in one's life or development of the mammary uh, glands? And then he also suggested like examining the breast milk for estrogen 
for obese and non-obese mothers um, using like he had this this idea of using high milk and, and four milk um, at different, you know, from the same mother at different times to see if estrogen may be playing a role in inhibiting lactation as well. So I think that, um, I, I think this is exciting. I hope that he does this. I do know that some people have said that mice are not great models for human lactation. <laughs> But what we need are people who have all these tools, right? Who can do the measurements, who, who can do milk measurements of hormones, who can um, uh, understand other physiologic markers that we need to use, who perhaps can use imaging studies to identify glandular tissue changes. Um, these are people who are not human milk, who are not like human physiology researchers, researchers for the most part, many of them are mammary gland researchers and who work in, um, with other animals. So I think we need to unite and work with our, our, um, our colleagues who, have, who work with our furry friends. <laughs> well, you know, it may not be a great model because those mice may not have psychological concerns about seeking help when they're not making enough milk, but. That's true, that's true. Yeah. But it's, it, is, it is really interesting to try to understand, you know, why is it sometimes you know, women who have large breasts make lots of milk and I was going to say women who are overweight make lots of milk and have very large breasts and have tremendously high storage capacity, right. um, more so than women who have smaller breasts. So right. why, why is it that this particular woman who we would think would have this risk factor, you know, doesn't have a problem and they're so... I could just geek out all day about this. Yeah, I feel like, um, my, here's my thing. I, 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 there's a lot of attention paid towards obesity and insufficient milk production, right? And how much of it is psychological, social, lack of support, et cetera. But I feel like if women don't have the characteristic breast changes and they're obese, I don't see as much of a correlation with just obesity and insufficient milk. Um, I mean, I see a lot of people who are lean, you know, clearly they have insufficient glandular tissue, it's genetic. Um, they were never overweight during puberty. Obesity never played a role. But I, one of my things that I fear is that we, are, that we might be putting too much emphasis on obesity in women and that people will just chalk it up to, well, you're obese, you know? So in other words, what I fear is having OBGYN say, or family doctors or whoever's working with a mother to say to her, well, we don't make enough milk, but you know that's what happens when you're obese. Not to be derogatory, but to, to believe that, that um, the workup ends there. And it doesn't necessarily, right? As, um, well, and, and I think that that sort of paints the picture as very binary, right? So yes, there are people who have, like when I, you know, this is not a super scientific way that I do my assessment, but like when I see a patient and I write a note and I write, you know, low milk production, I put mild, moderate, or severe. Mm -hmm. And like my classification of that is, is this somebody who is needing a little bit of supplement to get their baby to grow normally? Is this mom who's using half and half? Or is this a lady who, you know, she did all the right things, but she's only making three ounces a day. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so those are very different situations and they have different physiology. And sometimes what initially appears to be severe or moderate really is not if they respond to appropriate interventions. And right. so that's the place where I think you're absolutely right. I don't want a patient who didn't get off to a great start to not get the support that she deserves to get up to, you know, whatever her potential is. And, you know, hearing like, yeah, this time didn't go great. Your baby was in the NICU and it was a really hard start, but if you have another baby, it may be totally different is amazing. I've had so many patients who told me, you know, I didn't have very much milk. And then I'm like, well, you know, now you're with me for the second baby. Let's see how it goes. And they do awesome. Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And um, so, yeah, I guess my, my whole thing is that it's very uncommon for me to, to attribute insufficient milk production to just obesity, particularly if they carry their weight in their in their hips and not in their belly. I mean, because I feel like it is more so associated for women who carry the weight in their abdomens and therefore, you know, it has a higher association with um, insulin resistance. 
Yeah, and I think that um, while there certainly are the characteristics that you're describing of wide-spaced breasts, I have seen people who have been told, oh, I have wide-spaced breasts. And I look at their breasts and I'm like, I mean, if I use my imagination, I could use that as an excuse here, but it's not like a tremendous, you know, edge of the, of the bell curve. Right, right. And I think that, you know, we just have to, we have to try to try yeah. to help them. Yeah. I don't use the wide spacing as much as I do like the other things. Like the no, I agree that shape and the, the sort of, um, you know, not as much development on the underside, the, um, density being just immediately behind the areola and not further back. Um, because I mean, a lot of those women, they have more breast tissue than I have. I'm not, you know, not that much, but I had certain changes that were symmetric and, you know, that's where we talk about how the size of the breast doesn't really matter. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen a couple of women that I looked at them and then you know, when I saw the baby's transfer on the scale, I am just like, where did that come from? <laughs> it is yeah, uh, it amazing. They have amazing amount of, you know, their rapid turnover, like supercells in there. Yeah, it's like turning on the tap from their serum. It's just oozing out through the membrane into the baby. I'm like, that is awesome. It's amazing. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm gonna keep an eye on that researcher and see what he's coming up with the next couple of years. Excellent. Um, I wanted to just go over um, Philip Anderson's most recent, or maybe there's another one now in the December um, issue of Breastfeeding Medicine, but the November um, installment of his ongoing series of different um, medications that relate to lactation. And this one was pretty clinical. It was talking about drug treatment of Renaud's phenomenon of the nipple. Um, and Renaud's phenomenon is caused by vasospasm of the blood vessels in the extremities, including the nipple. It occurs in three to 5% of the population and in women about four times as often as men. And this is a very common cause of nipple pain. And it can be a cause of early um, weaning. Uh, Renaud's phenomenon is typically characterized by color change that is triphasic in the nipple, initially um, white, blanching due to the vasospasm, then to blue or purple from cyanosis due to deoxygenation of the static venous blood to dark red, which is a reactive hyperemia. And it is often misdiagnosed as candida albicans infection and treated with antifungals. Wow. If I had an eraser that I could use on the internet, I would first and foremost go to burning, stabbing nipple pain that shoots into your breast must be yeast. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to like totally, it's a myth. It's such a myth. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's a common thing that people read and then they propagate it and it's, it's out of control. Um, anyway, Renaud's is super common. I see it all the time. Um, and it is very commonly secondary to nipple trauma or found in people who have a history of Renaud's in the hands. Um, and this, he said also can be associated with a personal or family history of thyroid disease. Um, in some cases, some have suggested that the use of labetalol for treating preeclampsia may cause Renaud's of the nipple. Um, he says it can be brought on by nursing entering an air-conditioned room, opening the freezer door, swimming in cold water. I also add to this list pumping. And really it's both pumping and taking the baby or the pump off the breast where it gets cold, um, as well as, and when I say pumping, I mean actually the ischemia that happens during the, the stretch part of the, the phase um, of the vacuum and exiting the shower. I find to be a very um, sensitive question. If the patient answers, yes, my nipples have this when I exit the shower and my nipples get cold, that has got to be treated as this initially. Um, That's what you call pathognomonic. Yes, pathognomonic. <laughs> the uh, non-drug treatments include 
optimizing breastfeeding technique, getting rid of whatever's causing the trauma, warming the nipples. He put stress management, which made me laugh, <laughs> and avoiding the cold. Um, avoidance of smoking, caffeine, non-selective beta blockers, and vasoconstrictors, such as pseudofedrin, which generally we want to have people avoid in breastfeeding anyway, unless they're trying to reduce their milk production, yeah. um, can, is recommended. When these methods are not successful, drug therapy is often used. Um, several systemic and topical therapies have been described, but have not undergone rigorous clinical trials in patients with the nipple phenomenon. Dr. Anderson's column reviews um, the reports of drug therapy for Raynaud's of the nipple, as well as some general information on treatment that might help to inform uh, treatment of nipple symptoms. So first up, calcium channel blockers. Dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers include amlodipine, nifedipine, and nicardipine, as well as six, other that six others that rhyme. These have a greater effect on peripheral blood vessels and a lesser effect on the AV and SA nodes of the heart than diltiazem or verapamil. Diltiazem and verapamil have less effect on the peripheral vasculature um, than the dihydropyridines, so may not be as useful in treating for nodes. A 2004 meta-analysis of um, calcium channel blockers for treating primary Renaud's not of the nipple found um, severity was reduced by a third, as well as the number of attacks, and a more recent Cochrane meta-analysis concluded that calcium channel blockers reduce the frequency of these attacks. Nifedipine is considered first-line drug treatment for Renaud's in the vast majority of reports of treating, um, and the vast majority of reports of treating nipple Renaud's have used nifedipine. Amlodipine is inherently long-acting, providing a potential advantage over nifedipine, and has been used but has less published evidence. Typically for nifedipine, people use doses of 20 milligrams three times a day, although some used less and others have used the long-acting 30 to 60 milligrams a day. Common maternal side effects are headache, dizziness, hypotension, and tachycardia, and these can be lessened by starting at a lower dose and working up to the maximum dose. Amlodipine has been initiated at five milligrams a day and increased as necessary to 20 a day. And um, the milk levels of both of these medications are low and plasma levels in breastfed infants are undetectable. So maternal use of these drugs has not caused any adverse effects in breastfed infants. Um, the next category is the phospho um, diesterase type five inhibitors, PDE5, which includes sildenafil, tadalafil, and vardenafil. Um, these vasodilators are used in Renaud's refractory, refractory to calcium channel blockers. A meta-analysis of trials of these drugs for secondary Renaud's found that they are moderately effective in this condition, decreasing clinical severity, frequency, and duration of attacks. And um, he's got some information on dosing for those and adds adverse effects are flushing, headache, dizziness, less frequently, hypotension, arrhythmias, cerebral vascular accident, and vision changes. Um, the sildenafil um, has been used during breastfeeding in two patients treated for primary hypertension and milk level levels were very low in one and the second um, appeared to have no adverse effects in the baby who had her milk. Yeah, I've never used um, any, I mean, I use them for men in my practice, but not, I haven't used them for women at all. That's so funny. I actually forgot that that was Viagra because the only time I've ever used um, any of those medications was when I took care of children in the ICU waiting for a heart transplant, mm. like heart failure. Yeah. Um, so yes, being a pediatrician. Yeah. I mean, the tricky thing with treating all these women is that they tend to have low blood pressures. And so, um, you know, when they have blood pressures, when they're dealing with vasospasm, they have blood pressures of 90 systolic. It's tricky. Um, <laughs> I do tell people when I start them on nifedipine um, to drink Gatorade and eat potato chips and French fries to um, improve their intravascular volume over the first few days to minimize headache. I also am a big fan of prescribing popsicles and ice cream in my role as a pediatrician. 
best doctor ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, breastfeeding moms, ice cream sandwich on your way to go sit down and nurse. It's got calcium. It's got calories. It's delicious. Hey, I grew up in Wisconsin. So uh, my mother always said that ice cream is a health food. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I am totally for it after we just finished talking about obesity for 10 minutes. Um, other oral therapies that have evidence of benefiting Renaud's although they have not been studied in nipple disease, include the angiotensin receptor blocker, lorsatin, 50 milligrams a day. And um, it worked better than nifedipine in an open label study. Losartan um, has not been studied in breastfeeding, but another um, ARB Candesartan has, and preliminary evidence suggests that this passes poorly into breast milk and is barely detectable in plasma of breastfed infants. The next one is fluoxetine, Prozac, 20 milligrams, reduce the frequency of attacks to a greater extent than nifedipine in primary and secondary Renaud's. But this isn't a great choice in breastfeeding because milk levels can be high and some infants can have high serum levels um, and have had effects such as fussiness, colic, and drowsiness in women using this medication for depression. Mm-hmm. The last pharmaceutical is topical nitroglycerin. Oofda, I don't think I would. <laughs> Which I don't think anybody should use on the nipple. Um, so I will just say, he said, you know, this has a rapid vasodilator action and has been used on people's fingers and doesn't necessarily make it a good idea to put it on your nipple because of the concern of the baby ingesting it. And not only because of the active ingredient, but because it has a petroleum base and the paraffins are um, too much for the baby. The, the, um, the, petro- the petroleum products, the hydrocarbons, Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 He, yeah, he definitely um, has talked about that. In some yeah. Of there was a really good one on ointments versus creams a while ago. He did. I had to put, the, I had to add this part because he said one woman with a history of vasoconstricted pain in the hands and nipples who failed nifedipine treatment was treated with a low dose nitroglycerin ointment and told to stop nursing her symptoms and nipple color returned to normal within a few weeks, which intervention caused her improvement is yeah. unclear. I've never, ever in 30 years seen the basal spasm unrelated to lactation. Um, I have recently had two patients tell me that they got this that started during their pregnancy. Right. During pregnancy is one thing, but not during, yeah. you know, they're already developing. Not, yeah, not, not, not random. No, no. I just, I thought like, he's got to have such a dry sense of humor to be like, I'm not sure whether it was the weaning or yeah, the nitroglycerin. <laughs> Yeah, no, I do, but it is true that women who have a history of spasm with the previous lactational episode, I feel like they definitely identify with their next pregnancy that they start with spasm in the pregnancy. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, were you going to talk about some other non-medication? There were a couple of supplements. Um, one of them was um, evening primrose, primrose, primrose oil, fish oil, vitamin B6, pyridoxine and L-arginine. And actually the only one of those that I had heard of for this was L-arginine. And I had read about it previously and learned that it is a precursor to our body making nitric oxide, um, which is a physiological vasodilator. So there is some evidence that it improves um, blood flow and its use has not been reported. Um, in the nipple condition, but I have definitely had patients who were told by lactation consultants to take this. And I did not necessarily consider that to be within the scope of practice. Probably not. Um, I have some patients who use L-arginine for their hypertension Mm -hmm. and um, it's not super impressive. Like I don't see major differences with it, but then maybe I'm not seeing the ones who are taking it, whose blood pressures are fine. Um, telling me that they're taking it. But, yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. I think spasm is in lactation has some other causes too. Like I, you know, we've talked to, to Dr. Katrina Mitchell about this, who's a breast surgeon 
And we talked about how there's so much innervation around the breast. And so when women have hyperlactation, they can actually have sort of flashing on and off of, you know, their nerves um, causing vasospasm. So sometimes I find that um, one breast will have vasospasm and the other won't. And that's the best with the higher milk production. And if we well, the stretch on the nerves, she has said is somewhat um, what's, what's causing that, which totally made sense to me. Yes, it definitely makes sense. And then, um, and then I've had, like, I had one woman recently who, who had vasospasm when she was hot, when she was hot and worked up and anxious, she would have vasospasm. And when she was caught and cold felt better, but it was clearly vasospasm. It was pale and then purple and then flushed. And so we, and so, um, we reviewed vasospasm with Dr. Divya Parikh in a case presentation that that I able did back in, I think it was August. And she had this amazing drawing, which kind of spoke to me immediately about this patient. And that is, you know, when you think about how blood vessels work, like the, at the very ends of the blood vessels, you know, they kind of like, you know, end up in that dirt road of just like those tiny capillaries um, connecting from the arterial, uh, the arterioles to the venules, right? Well, there are these shunts that connect the artery and venous circulation. And those shunts are susceptible to sympathomimetic stimulation. So um, adrenaline and steroids can actually cause those to basically spasm down as well. And so that totally made sense to me why being upset would, um, would cause that to happen. And then I've also seen people with a vasospasm in the middle of the summer um, when they're exercising or if they have coffee um, or even my teenagers who, you know, I see them who increase their methylphenidate or their other stimulant medication for ADD and they have vasospasm any time of the year. Um, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. That's a really common cause of, I mean, a lot of the teens, especially teen females, I've never seen in males, but my teen females who take stimulants oftentimes have vasospasm um, of not only of their fingers, but sometimes their whole arm will look blue um, at times. So, so then what do you treat them with? Um, then um, I'll try Stratera, just try something different um, mm. or try a lower dose if they can tolerate it or a different form of it, you know, not the short acting, for example. They, they, they do better with the long acting actually. Uh, but it's actually fairly common. Um, but I, I, I think, so even though he said that like deltiazem and nifedipine are not as effective as, um, as amlodipine or nifedipine, you know, a lot of women, their blood pressures are just too low to tolerate nifedipine and amlodipine. And so I use verapamil. And it works well. I think it works well. And they don't get constipated like my little old ladies do on it. <laughs> it's um so, um, and then I just want to um, say something about B12, uh, B. Oh, wait. So I, that was the last thing that I was waiting. So I could say is like this, he said B6, hundred milligrams twice a day has been suggested. Higher doses may decrease milk supply. So this should not be increased beyond this level, but he didn't say what the mechanism was. And I don't know. I don't know, but I don't trust it. I mean, I, I think high doses of B6 are not safe. Um, I've, you know, we used to use high doses of B6 years ago for women who had PMS. That was like mm -hmm. the PMS treatment. And uh, these women would start to get neuropathic symptoms. Um, oh, I remember you saying that. Yeah. So like they can't feel their feet in the morning. They, yeah. That sounds lame. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's a neurotoxin. So I don't think that people Let's should not do that. And then the, the last thing was that he was talking about the omega three and the fish oil and the primrose oil could be pre precursors to the prostaglandins and prostacyclins. And um, those can also, you know, have a, a dilatory effect, but these take days to weeks to work. And so they would be viewed more as prophylactic agents in those with a history of Renaud's rather than acute therapy. And then he said, neither of these two oils presents any special problems for the breastfed infant. But I wanted to highlight, you know, that sometimes you've noted women who are taking fish oil can have some problems with um, more clogs and um, blocked ducts. Yeah, sometimes I think that um, particularly, I feel like it's more like animal fats, um, mm. you know, dairy, for example, and steak, um, which are fats that um, are solid and cold temperatures, I guess. 
Um, I see. But, uh, and then the other thing with fish oil is that some people complain that their milk is so smelly when it's, you know, stored for a while. And I, I recommended that maybe some people stop taking fish oil to see if that helps. I don't know for sure if it does or not, but. Did you see the, um, the commentary from Arthur on the, the, oh gosh, it was about basically the um, smell of breast milk being comforting and the, you know, mother's own milk versus donor milk and the memory piece. Uh, it was uh -huh. in the November one. He was, oh, no, I, don't, I didn't see that. He likes, he's very poetic. I think uh, yes, he, really he, he enjoys bringing that to it. Yeah, for everyone who's, uh, who's listening, it's uh, Dr. Arthur Eidelman, who's our editor of the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal. Yeah, he's very, anytime he reads, he writes anything, he's very, he is incredibly articulate. He's an amazing writer. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, like you had said, we have vasospasm, we really want to find the cause. And then I use a lot of heat and many of my patients, if they know that they're pain, they know it's from vasospasm and they know that he can help. They tend to want to avoid medication because as long as they know what's causing the pain, they're comfortable dealing with it as long as it's not severe. So I'm a big one for using foot warmers on the backs of uh, breast pads. Cause of course I live in the North and everyone knows what foot warmers are. I always say the little warmers you put in your gloves. I, uh, oh, I think that, I don't know if they have a sticky, but the foot ones do. Oh, yes. Yeah. I just tell people to stick them in a sock and stick them in their bra. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh yeah. That's a good idea. I never thought of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is um, why we have to hang out so we can share. We, this is why we have to hang out so we can share all of our, our yeah. little ideas. Yes, absolutely. All right, so I want to talk about uh, finger feeding, and I was excited to see this recent article because there's very little documentation on the benefit, risks of finger feeding, even though I think finger feeding is very um, pervasive within, especially in the United States. And so um, this was actually a study that was done among infants who are in a neonatal intensive care unit in Turkey. It's entitled Comparison of the Finger Feeding Method versus Syringe Feeding Method in Supporting Sucking Skills of Premature Babies. The first authors, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna murder their names because I just I, not do very well because they're different names, but it's um, ML Boulder, Nalan Nelson, Baltasi and others. So they were interested to see if babies would actually be more successful going to breastfeeding earlier and could accelerate their oral feeds if they were finger fed versus syringe fed. And so um, they took 35 babies and fed them via finger feeding and compared them with 35 babies who were syringe feeding to see which one actually um, had better sucking skills um, uh, you know, sooner, basically. So these are all babies. They were between 30 and 35 weeks gestation, and they were all in room air. They all had previously been fed with oral gastric feedings. And this was their first time getting fed other than oral gastric feedings. So one, so the, the finger feeding group was finger fed four times a day. And the syringe feeding group was fed four times a day with, with, um, with the syringe feeding. So and all the other feedings that they had were oral gastric tubes and none of these babies had any bottles yet. So what they did is they, the, one of the ways that they measured distress and pain, they used something called the comfort scale. And that's an, an, that's an acronym. It stands for, it's a scale that looks at calmness, alertness, um, movement, uh, facial expression, um, their um, muscle tone, their mean arterial pressure and their heart rate and the respiratory response. And um, so the way, so then they just, they measured that even though it was um, different, that was just one measure, but the other measure was to see, you know, how fast they got to the breast and were effective at the breast. So the way they did the finger feeding is they took a five French 36 inch feeding tube and they stuck that in a bottle and then they inserted it through the nipple. They just cut the nipple hole larger. So put it through the nipple. Um, and that's in order to prevent it, you know, if it spills, it won't go all over, right? And so then the, um, the feeding tube was placed on the finger um, on, and the parent's little finger, the pinky, and uh, then the feeding tube was, uh, the pinky was placed against the palate with the finger tube, you know, sitting right there. And they would move the bottle up above the baby's head if the baby was sort of sluggish with feeding in order to make it a little more passive of feeding. But the baby basically had to suck it down, right? 
And then the, um, the syringe feeding involved taking a one or two millimeter syringe and just dropping little drops of breast milk into the, into the cheek pouch and then just slowly dribbling that in. Um, the, the finger feeding group, they were approximately 31 weeks gestation on average and the syringe feeding group was 32 weeks on average. So there was a week difference between these two groups. So what they found is that the average time to breastfeeding with finger feeding from, from finger feeding to breastfeeding was 19 days, but from the syringe feeding to breastfeeding was 25 days. And the average hospitalization for the group that was um, finger fed was like 29.7 days and was 35.9 days for those who are syringe fed. Um, also, what's interesting is that the average weight gain was higher among those who were um, finger fed. So they gained on average about 32 grams a day, but those who were syringe fed were, gained 25 grams a day. Um, they also noted that the, the finger fed babies had improved comfort score, scores than those who were syringe fed, which I think is interesting because you know there's, there's kind of like more control, right, for the babies who are finger feeding than the syringe feeding. And then they also noticed that there was significantly less leakage, like the, like the ones who were finger feeding didn't really leak. There wasn't any like spill, but there was significant spill with the um, syringe feeding. So overall, they, did, they um, felt that finger feeding was uh, definitely advantageous over syringe feeding. There was greater weight gain, faster transition to breastfeeding, shorter hospitalization, improved comfort, less spillage. So that's all like, what more can you ask for, you know, when you're comparing methods? Um, Interest, so I, I was glad to see the bibliography because I figured, well, this would be a study that would have a bibliography that would contain the other studies on finger feeding because I didn't bother to do a search. And there was only one study in the past on finger feeding, yet we do it all the time, you know, and there was only one other study. And that was also in the NICU population comparing it with cup feeding. And they found that finger feeding was easier and less wasteful than cup feeding. Mm. So yeah, so uh that's that's so interesting. And I think that, you know, my, I don't, I don't love finger feeding, but part of the reason is that sometimes I meet these families that are, um, they left the hospital after being instructed to do some finger feeding to supplement because, you know, their baby wasn't getting enough directly breastfeeding. And they are doing this with the tube taped to the finger, as you described, but then attached to a five or 10 ml syringe. And it is taking all day and it's, they're not getting very much volume into the baby. And so, you know, this siphon method is a total game changer because the baby, um, yes, if it is, um, the bottle is higher then the flow rate will be higher once they start the siphon. And if it's down below, they have to, you know, use more force against gravity to keep it going. Um, but I find that, you know, the natural rhythm of baby suck responds to flow. And when you swallow and drop your chin, you get flow. And so they keep going, um, which doesn't work well with the syringe. And that tends to get people into trouble as the babies are needing more volume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, right. I, I, you know, I oftentimes I, I see the same thing where families are using, you know, finger feeding, there are two to three weeks postpartum, the baby's now is up to 90 ml of feeding. And they're just using these, you know, 10 ml syringes, and it's taking forever. And I say, you know, it's time to go to a bottle. And they're like, hallelujah, you know, um, we want to get out of this. So I like to just recommend finger feeding for like the first week. And then, you know, for the term, you know, for babies who are outpatients. Yeah, yeah. But I think the big problem is that people are just leaving the hospital without appropriate follow up. Exactly. Right. And they're not given any timeline that is, you know, if things are not getting better at the breast, and you've naturally got away from this in a couple of days, you need to come back and see us. Exactly. Well, they need to come back anyway, right? I mean, there should be always having that follow-up. Um, yeah, but it's interesting about finger feeding in the NICU. Obviously, I'm not a neonatologist and, you know, these babies are young and they, you know, five French is, uh, you know, it's, well, I guess it's big for them, but I mean, they really have to pull. I and mean, that's the thing with finger feeding. They have to pull and they have to be stimulated to feed, which is probably why they only did it four times a day and otherwise did the oral gastric feeds. So, um, and then boy, syringe feeding, man, that's gotta take forever to drop in those little drops. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that's just um, not yeah. sound efficient at all. 
Yeah, I'd like to see more research on, on finger feeding, but I know that it really has helped a lot of families, you know, sort of bridge that gap, in, you know, especially with delays in lactation. You know what you need, a fellow. I do need a fellow. And if anyone out there would like to be my fellow, please let me know, but you have to be a family doctor to be my fellow. So, yeah. If only I were a family doctor. Yeah. I have one last study I want to share with you. This is a pretty short one. Um, this is about um, the association of parity and infant feeding method with breast density on mammography. So, you know, a lot of us, so there was some sort of law or something like that, some sort of legislation that women needed to be notified if when they have a mammogram, if they have dense tissue, that they have to be notified that they that the mammogram is not as sensitive in finding lesions and that there is a higher risk of breast cancer uh, for those who have dense breasts. Um, so then the question is, okay, so does breastfeeding help to prevent breast density and reduce the risk of breast cancer as, you know, what is this one of the ways that it reduces the risk of breast cancer? So, um, so this was a study that was published recently in the Academic Radiology Journal, um, and it was performed in Japan. The authors are Nakajima, um, Aiji Nakajima, um, and Takuji Iwasi, and there's a number of other authors. And so they were interested in looking at this relationship between dense breasts on mammography and parity, so whether or not they had babies, and then and how many babies, and how they fed their infants. And so lo just looking at the background of what's been published so far, um, they state that uh, it's pretty much known in the literature that women who have never had children have denser breasts, but they weren't sure if breastfeeding was associated with less dense breasts. Um, there was one study that was published in, in Greece, and that showed um, a, that um, the longer premenopausal women, so we're just talking about women before they go through menopause, the longer they breastfed, the less dense their breasts. And then in Spain, they found the exact opposite, that the, there was higher density among those um, who had breastfed longer. And we're talking about um, breastfeeding for more than nine months. So it's not, you know, it's not like we're talking about like just a few months here and there because then you can't really measure anything, right? Um, but in Spain, you know, they, they were looking at women who breastfed for more than nine months. So what they decided to do is like, okay, there's one study showing one thing, one study showing another. So now this third one breaks the tie, right? Um, so this study evaluated 90 women who were all between the ages of 45 and 49, and they all had a history of breast cancer. And so they put them into three groups. They found, they put the group, so 30 um, were nulliparous. They never had children. Um, 30 were formula feeding and 30 were breastfeeding. So they didn't include anyone, anyone who was mixed, who had a history of mixed feeding with formula and breast milk, they were just not included in the study. Um, they also looked at the parity among those who were, for, who formula fed or breastfed to know like how many babies they had, because that would play a role as well. Um, and so then they just measured the density of the images of the breasts that didn't have breast cancer. And they described it as either high density or normal density. Um, and so what they found in essence is that 26% of the women um, had high de highly dense breasts. So that's of all the women, 20, like a quarter of women had dense breasts. But of course, this is a group that had a history of breast cancer. Among the nulliparous women, 40% of women had dense breasts. So those not having children had much denser breasts than those who did have children. And then among those who had children, 17% had dense breasts. Um, and there was no difference um, in breast density between those who had breastfed and those who didn't. And interestingly, the average um, amount of time that these women breastfed was about 36 months. So, oops, I think you're muted. Was there anything in there about the time from weaning until when these measurements were taken? Because I'm curious, you know, how far they were past the involution of their glandular tissue. No, they didn't say anything about that. Yeah. So they were 45 to 49 and they chose that age range partly because of course that's a common age to have breast cancer, but also knowing that they would not be pregnant um, anytime near. It's a common age to be pregnant in my clinic, but yeah, right. <laughs> but yes. That's, yeah. Right. that's a, the area that I live in. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. And I, it really, it makes me question because I don't understand fully, like what 
is the, what is it on MRI that is showing up as dense, right? So the breast is composed of um, sort of connective tissue and fat and tubular elements. And is it that there's more connective tissue? Because I think of like how it would show up on imaging that like fat would be not what's packed in there, right? Like... No, it's not related to fat because actually as there's fatty degeneration of the breasts as women age, you don't, they're not as dense anymore. Um, and the, my understanding is that the breast cancer comes about, you know, your typical breast cancer comes about from the components of the glandular tissue. Yeah. Um, so like it's the just, whole, you know, carcinoma in situ. Yeah. And so um, I think it's just, I, I always thought that it was density of the glandular tissue, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, I just my like, you know, that like nice slide you have of the little shoot and then the tree and it's leafing out and it's bearing fruit. And then, you know, after weaning, a lot of that glandular tissue goes away. But, you know, what, what parts of the terminal buds and the ducts are still there? And um, well, my understanding is that in animals, um, like mice and cows, and also in um, humans, that if you actually biopsy the tissue, you're not going to be able to tell um, whether or not they had a, whether or not they had a child. Yeah. It's like virgin mouse tissue looks the same as, um, you know, post-weaning mouse yeah. tissue. And that's so, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's really interesting along yeah. with that, you know, study that showed that women who were pregnant, regardless of whether or not they chose to breastfeed have some, you know, same effects of gravity over time on their breasts. Mm-hmm. all right well that's great and uh i think that i think that's it for today it's really good talking to you uh lots of things to think about and yeah those were really interesting thank you so yeah. much yeah and we'll be in touch soon sounds good bye yep, bye for questions regarding this podcast please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.